0: Hi everyone, I'd like to welcome you to this month's broadcast of o Research Insights presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthesis. My name is Steve Gard and I'm the Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. This episode is sponsored by Spinal Technology. My guest today is Dr. Maddie Major. Dr. Major is an Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and Department of Biomedical Engineering at Northwestern University and a research health scientist at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center in Chicago. He's a faculty member of the Northwestern University Prosthetics Orthotics Center, where he instructs for the Master of Prosthetics and Orthotics Clinical Education Program and directs the Prosthetics and Orthotics Rehabilitation Technology Assessment Laboratory. Following completion of bachelor's and master's degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, he was awarded a PhD in biomedical engineering from the University of Salford, Manchester, United Kingdom. Dr. Major completed postdoctoral training in rehabilitation science and biostatistics through Northwestern University and a US Department of Veterans Affairs career development award. Dr. Major's research focuses on the design and optimization of rehabilitation interventions to enhance mobility and independence of individuals with musculoskeletal or neurological pathology. His research activities include development of user-centered prosthetic devices and investigations on locomotor stability and postural control of prosthesis and orthosis users. He serves on the editorial board for the journal of prosthetics and orthotics the orthotic and prosthetic education and research foundation research committee and the international society for prosthetics and orthotics scientific committee today we're going to be discussing a recent article that maddie published in jpo entitled do upper limb loss and prosthesis use affect lower limb gait dynamics welcome to the podcast maddie
1: Well, thank you, Steve, for that generous introduction. And um, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you for the invitation. This gives me an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is me. So that's only getting. Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, that's wonderful. I will say that the title of your article is very intriguing. Do upper limb loss and prosthesis use affect lower limb gait dynamics? So why does this topic interest you?
1: Sure. So uh, just to start, I would say one of the primary tracks of my research is focused on how humans maintain balance during dynamic tasks, such as walking. Um, We tend to make great use of our arms to facilitate postural control, both during steady state walking as well as uh, when recovering from a disturbance. Um, Some of my earlier work suggests that about 45% 45 of individuals with upper limb loss or congenital absence uh, will experience at least one fall in a given year, and nearly a third of those who fall will suffer an injury from their fall. So i'm interested in trying to advance our understanding of how arpa limb loss or absence affects gait and locomotor stability and how prosthesis use plays into that um i would say some of my inspiration to pursue this research actually came from reading a memoir of a former cnn anchor miles o'brien uh, O'Brien, who i admire very much uh he received a transhumeral level amputation following complications with acute compartment syndrome um and if i just grant me a moment i'll read a little bit from his uh, memoir He wrote, uh, it was nothing more than a slightly uneven sidewalk that took me down here are two things you need to know about life after an arm amputation first your center of gravity changes dramatically when you are suddenly eight pounds lighter on one side of your body and second. While my arm may be missing physically, it is there when I tripped I reached reflexively to break my very real fall with my completely imaginary left hand my fall was instead broken by my nose and my nose was broken by my fall. So really through this research thread, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to investigate falls, locomotor stability, standing balance, and generally gait biomechanics of individuals with upper upper limb loss or absence.
0: Thank you, Maddie, for sharing that background and kind of the motivation for this study itself. So specifically, what was the purpose of this study that you conducted?
1: So with this particular study, what we were interested in is really trying to examine how upper limb loss or absence and prosthesis use influences uh, spatiotemporal com- uh, parameters, kinetics and kinematics of uh, gait um, when walking at a comfortable speed over level ground. So again, really trying to characterize how individuals with upper limb loss or absence um, will walk, what their gait biomechanics look like um, and how that then is influenced by use a prosthesis
0: and in conducting this study what did you expect to find did you have hypotheses or expectations for the outcomes here
1: Uh, yeah so with any good study um, that is hypothesis driven right you have expectations and this one in particular there's a good amount of background that's already been conducted on trying to use able-bodied individuals i say able-bodied when i'm referring to our individuals without amputation how they walk and how they respond to perturbations in the sense that if you constrain one of their arms or both of their arms um, and restrict those natural arm dynamics, um, then they, they demonstrate some change as a result of that. And these changes tend to really be predominantly focused on spatiotemporal parameters, so things like step width and step time and step length. Um, but at the same time, a lot of that research has demonstrated that even with these, um, these different types of bound conditions where you're restricting those natural arm movements, even though spatial temporal parameters might change generally the lower extremity gate biomechanics, that being, uh, joint dynamics, you're looking at joint kinetics and kinematics, um, those tend to remain constant. And so the hypotheses, as we were going into this, um, essentially for us, what we were paying attention to was saying that, yeah, if the if those able bodied type simulation studies demonstrate changes in spatial temporal parameters, but not really in gait biomechanics, we would expect the same thing, right? So individuals with upper limb loss would have these changes in spatial temporal parameters. um, And if they were using a prosthesis, you would expect some type of change, but there may be adaptations occurring such that their gait biomechanics are relatively stable. So really invariant to these changes, So even if they're using a prosthesis, you wouldn't necessarily see changes in joint kinematics and joint kinetics.
0: Okay, let's get into the methods a little bit and start talking some details here. So would you please describe the experimental protocol for
1: your study? Absolutely. So we had a fairly unique study. Um, we brought individuals in who had uh, upper limb loss or congenital limb absence, um, both at the transradial level and the transhumeral level. And um, what we were paying attention to was trying to see if these individuals uh, walking at a comfortable self-selected speed overgrounds um, in our motion analysis laboratory, um, what they generally, what their gate biomechanics look like, right? So we're, we're examining, again, as I mentioned, spatial parameters, uh, kinematics and kinetics, and those kinetics also include ground reaction forces as well. Um, and we tested these individuals under three different conditions. Um, one in which they are walking without a prosthesis, one in which they are walking with their customary prosthesis. So whatever they uh, are are prescribed or have been prescribed and they're customarily using. Um, And then for our third condition, this was sort of a unique condition. And ultimately what we were doing is that we created a mock prosthesis and that mock prosthesis allowed us to um, essentially have them use a prosthesis or prosthetic type device in which um, we could take disc weights And we could add more weight to the prosthesis. We could change the location of those weights. We could change that point mass such that we can try and essentially match the mass and the inertial characteristics of their sound limb. So all these individuals that we are bringing in are unilateral, uh, have unilateral impairment or unilateral amputation or uh, congenital limb absence. And so what we're doing is we're using that mock prosthesis to match the uh, contralateral limb in that case.
0: So in instance, you're uh, providing them with upper limb uh, mass and moment of inertia symmetry. So you would expect gait to possibly be enhanced under those
1: conditions. Yeah, one might think so. Right. There, there's although a lot of this this the research that we're performing here is new. Um, there There is a precedent for it. And I'll say that in the sense that some of the motivation for this actually comes from Work that has been done previously for individuals with lower extremity amputation, so particularly transtibial, and more. There's more recent uh, evidence uh, that has mer- emerged for transfemoral as well. Um, but in a lot of those studies, those very classical studies that were performed probably maybe 20 years ago at this point, I would say, um, what they had done was actually change the mass, add mass, and also change the location of that mass for uh, the a transtibial prosthesis to see again, how that actually affects individuals trans uh, tibial amputation and how their gait dynamics are affected as a result of that. And so really some of that inspiration also comes from there, right? To see if potentially by creating that symmetry across the body, um, we may be able to enhance gait biomechanics. And again, speaking of inspiration, some of that refers back to uh, the memoir that I was reading from Miles, um, because again, what I think what he refers to as, as uh, someone with a, a pretty new amputation, um there's obviously an asymmetry in mass and he felt that right and that that essentially played into it, an influence on how he moved and how he responded to perturbations in that case and so really we're trying to see if we actually are able to to match those um parameters uh, does it does that change gait biomechanics the last thing i'll say about that is ultimately typically clinically what ends up happening and we found this with the participants that came in uh, for for testing for our study the actual prosthesis itself, a transradial transhumeral prosthesis, they tend to be lighter than an intact arm, right? A physiological arm in that case. And I think for our study, um, overall, the, the prosthetic condition, the prosthesis or customary prosthesis, was 56% lighter than what would be estimated for the intact arm. So they're really substantially lighter. So for that third condition, that mock prosthesis, we're adding a, a good amount of weight r- really to it um to see if we can we can match again that those the the mass and the inertial parameters of the intact arm
0: and then whenever you collected data what outcome measures did you end up looking at
1: so a good variety um right really the the gambit of gate biomechanics so this is again um meant to be a characterization study at some level even though it is um hypothesis driven so we're we're looking at a, a vast amount of um of outcomes in this case we're looking at things like step width. we're looking at step time um, we're looking at step length, for example. We paid attention to ground reaction forces, um, the magnitude of those forces, um, and then working its way up the body through inverse dynamics, um, looking at, again, joint angular displacements, but also joint kinetics. So things like joint moments, for instance. Um, we're really paying attention to see if, 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 generally, the gait biomechanics and how individual um, responds to these types of different conditions, um, how that is essentially changes overall. So we're really trying to understand exactly on the whole what it, what is going on in terms of the actual dynamics for walking?
0: And how many subjects did you end up enrolling in the study, Maddie?
1: Yeah, we were aiming for three hundred. I'm only kidding. No, which would have been nice. Um, we ended up at ten, right? So that was that was ultimately, I think, initially going into this, we thought we were going to be able to recruit sufficient numbers of a large enough sample size, we'd actually be able to separate between those with a transradial and transhumeral level amputation. Um, that turned out not to be the case. So we ended up with 10 in total. Um, and that is a mix. So we had, I believe seven individuals with trans radial level, and then three individuals um, with transhumeral level, which is it's fairly common, right? Sometimes the, these things do happen recruitment for the, for particularly, um, for these, uh, type of individuals who use prostheses, uh, day to day, um, recruitment can be a challenge. Right. And so it is, um, it's sometimes difficult uh, to, to bring people in, convince them to want to come in, um, to spend two to three hours with us in a motion analysis laboratory um you know although it's nice to spend time with me sometimes it's it's a challenge
0: well we do appreciate the contributions of our research uh participants no doubt and recruitment's always challenging we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor spinal technology welcome back what were the primary findings of your investigation maddie
1: so you know what was interesting was ultimately um you know, we had two hypotheses going into this. So two, two, as I described before, one was based on the spatial temporal parameters, right? Things like step width and step length and step time. Um, and the the other side of that was looking at, again, these sort of joint dynamics, joint level dynamics. Um, and they, these are joint kinematics and, and kinetics. Um, I would say, so The, the both hypotheses, um, the first hypothesis turned out not to be, uh, not to be supported by our results in the sense that, um, Although we expected changes in these spatial temporal uh, parameters, uh, we did not notice any changes across the three conditions. Um, and same with the uh, the joint kinetics and joint kinematics, um, excuse me, the kinetics uh, overall and then joint kinematics. Um, those also did not change. And I would say some of that was surprising, but also maybe perhaps a little bit expected. And some of the previous work we've done in this domain, um, actually working with a, with the same cohort, um, we do find, and we do see that there are changes to upper body motion, right? And there's some, there, you know, th- this is, again, it, 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 does align a bit with some of the previous literature to suggest that, um, if you, if you change arm dynamics and you tend to constrain some of those dynamics or remove some of those dynamics, um, you will see these changes in upper body motion. So trunk, trunk motion, for example, um. And there is uh, some evidence suggests that because of these adaptations that take place, in the more proximal portions of the body um, that actually allows for generally um, sort of invariant or, or a lack of change um, with the lower half of the body. And so and so that maybe what we're seeing here, ultimately, so we do see, for instance, changes in transverse rotations right for for some of these um, for the, across these conditions and. Um, they t- if i remember they tend to be larger for individuals without using the prosthesis and that tends to um diminish with uh, the use of a prosthesis uh but again because of these changes that may explain some of what we're seeing here is that ultimately um you know there there's sort of these and this is this invariant approach to lower extremity gait biomechanics
0: so were there any unanticipated surprises in your results
1: um i'll certainly say that 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 alone was a surprise right not seeing these changes that we expected at some level um But, you know, it's, I I believe ultimately it does uh, provide, you know, I think there are certain clinical implications to all of this, right? Um, And I think it's important to get into a bit is that, um, you know, ultimately if individuals make use of a prosthesis Uh, and now, again, we had two particular conditions with the prosthesis, one in which it was substantially lighter and the other one where we added mass, right? We have that mock prosthesis condition. Ultimately, it doesn't really seem that as a result of having a heavier prosthesis, even if it's matched in terms of mass and inertial properties to the intact limb, it really has much of an effect. So, you know, this is a, a bit surprising, but I think ultimately it does, I think, add some, you know, a few clinical gems, so to speak in the sense that. You know a lot in terms of clinical practice um you know there, there really is a school of thought in terms of well it's try to make the prosthesis as light as possible and yes that makes sense in terms of maybe shoulder uh you know the sort of muscle activation and effort that's required for goal-oriented tasks if you're manipulating your workspace environment for instance so there, there certainly is an importance there but not necessarily for gait dynamics right in the sense that even having a heavier prosthesis even it is all the way to the point of you adding so much mass that it is matching that of the intact arm that doesn't tend to actually affect gait biomechanics all too much right so i think that is a bit of a surprise but uh, but again in terms of if you know clinically there is a concern in terms of adding too much mass to the prosthesis that it might actually affect walking ability The, the really at this point from, from the results of this limited study, the evidence isn't necessarily there. And so um, so you could certainly, you know, add mass in that case, although you have to be concerned, obviously, in terms of how that's going to affect um, an individual's effort if they're trying to use their prosthesis for reach and grasp tasks.
0: I appreciate you bringing out the, uh, the clinical application here. I mean, that's really important because I know a lot of our audience are practicing prosthetist and orthotist and are going to be, you know, curious to know about the mass effects on gait dynamics, which I'm sure a lot of people really haven't even considered. Um, now, in the course of your study, did you actually encounter any notable problems? And if so, how did you address them?
1: Yes. Yeah, so one particular problem. So, you know, as I mentioned, we were trying to recruit individuals who use prostheses, and I will say that, um, although individuals had ownership of a prosthetic device, um, they tended to use it. Some of these individuals rather infrequently. And, um, you know, I, I, wouldn't say it was necessarily a surprise. I think some of this is clinically known, um, even, you know, for individuals who, um, have sort of transradial level, uh, amputation or congenital limb, at limb absence, um, even though they might have a device, they might own a device, they may not necessarily use it frequently, right? Um, and so, right. So I think the, the across all of our individuals, there was quite a variation in terms of um, actual device use. And there was a mix, right? There was a mixed bag in terms of the different devices that were used as customary devices, ranging from cosmetic devices, um, all the way to electric controlled, um, you know, multi-articulated type of devices. Um, we had to contend with that, right? So there's there are certainly confounders that we're not necessarily considering here. You know, I think that also speaks a little bit to what needs to be done in future research. Again, we weren't able to separate between transradial and transhumeral. You know, there was a varied uh, d- different types of devices that were actually used. Um, so trying to perform those subgroup analyses wasn't really possible. And I think it's important for us to really start to understand: well, does the device type and the frequency of use actually have an effect. And I say that, because there is um, a beautiful paper that that actually was published um, prior to this, uh, that indicated that use of a prosthesis actually contributes to what's known as prosthetic embodiment. So how an individual actually incorporates the prosthetic device into their own body schema, um, which is which is of great interest to me and and, and speaks really to um, the implications for studies like these. But what they found is that individuals who did not use their device frequently it was often perceived by the body by the motor system as a disturbance right as a perturbation when they would actually use the device as opposed to those individuals who actually use their device more frequently um it was better incorporated into the body schema so there was greater level of embodiment and as a result these individuals demonstrated greater postural control right so if you you have if an individual with with upper limb amputation or upper limb loss and, or absence is making use of a device is wearing their device, but they don't make use of it too often. Um, the body may potentially see that as a disturbance. And so that relates to postural control. And what we don't know ultimately is how that actually relates to gait dynamics, biomechanics, postural control when you're walking. So locomotor stability, there potentially is some relationship, but we don't really know what that is quite yet. So, so these are the different types of covariates or confounders that we really haven't uh, been able to, to, Get a handle on quite yet. And I think that speaks to what needs to be done in terms of future research. So, what I'm interested in ultimately is really trying to understand how prosthetic embodiment, how an individual incorporates the device into their body schema, how they use it in terms of agency and ownership, will that potentially have downstream effects in terms of how the motor system interacts with the device to then influence uh, gait dynamics and locomotor stability?
0: Excellent points, Maddie. Uh, I was gonna ask you about recommendations for future research directions. You've already kind of touched on that here. You've already thrown out some considerations for someone who may wanna try to conduct a study like this on their own. So uh, thank you for that information. Just curious, did you receive any funding to conduct this study?
1: We did, we did. Yes, thankfully, generous funding. Um, so this study was actually supported through a um, small project award through the Department, US Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, who have been very, very supportive of prosthetics research um, and research for uh, rehabilitation of individuals with amputation. So obviously very grateful for that, um, uh, that funding support. Um, and, and you know, much of our work, even the work that we currently have that's ongoing in terms of um, how individuals uh, respond to gait disturbances. So that's, that's one of our ongoing studies at the moment. So looking at individuals with upper limb loss or absence, that's also supported by the Department of Veterans Affairs.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you for acknowledging them, Maddie. I'm sure they really appreciate that as well. We've come to the end of our podcast, so I'd like to thank Dr. Major for sharing his insights and discussing his research with us today. I'd like to remind everyone that if they'd like additional information on Dr. Major's project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of OMP Research Insights presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics, We'd like to extend a special thank you to our episode sponsor Spinal Technology. For more information, visit their website at www.spinaltech.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please plan to join us again next month for the Academy's o Research Insights Podcast, when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article. Thank you very much, Maddie.
1: Thanks, Steve. Take care.